Hey, um, mate, you know your stuff, man. I'll tell you what, you've pretty much watched everything I've ever done. Yeah. So I think a lot of you know people who are interested in growth, that's the mindset they have. Dane Christian Atherton. Yes, nice one. Yeah, picked it up from Dane's podcast. You'll have to watch Dane's podcast to get that reference, but please watch this one first. So, Dane, you're one of the most successful business owners and operators in the entire country. You're the managing director of Harcourts Coastal, which is five offices, 200-odd employees at last count, 120 salespeople roughly. You've got a huge rent roll. Shout out to your wife, Kim, and her team on that front. You've cracked 2.2 billion in transactions and over 40 million, 47 million technically in GCI in a 12-month period. Thanks for coming on Real Agent. Mate, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're on the beachfront, Dane. We're on Hedges Avenue and we're in Hedges Residence by Harry Paulus Architects. So firstly, a huge shout out and thank you to Harry and his team for having us here. Dane, I want to take things back to the beginning. You've worn a lot of hats over the course of your time in real estate. Selling principal, well, principal, you were briefly on the tools as a sales agent, auctioneer, trainer. And during the tail end of your time as a trainer, before you started Coastal, you were based in Brizzy. Yeah, I was. And you've told the story. You've grown up on the Gold Coast, though, but you're going for a run in Brizzy through a park, and you said it's really more like a depressing drain than it was a park, and I got what you meant when you said that. And sort of you were thinking back to the time you'd spent on the coast, and the penny sort of dropped, what am I doing in Brisbane when I could be on the Gold Coast? Yeah. Now, I love Brizzy, but the point I'm getting out there is I think sometimes agents can stumble into the farm area they select, or principals might set up shop where it's most convenient, but there are some serious long-term consequences to the area that you choose to work in, right? It obviously determines your market size, but it's going to determine your lifestyle as well. You can't go to the beach every morning if you're from Brizzy. Yeah. So this is clearly something that you thought about. I'd love to hear sort of your general thoughts on this topic of being a lot more intentional and deliberate about where you apply your trade, especially because if you do change your mind later, it means you have to start from scratch. 100%. And it's interesting because that same drain that I refer to, my business partner, Rob Ford, actually lives near that drain. And he walks his dog and, and he runs through it. It's actually, I'll, I'll disclose the position of the drain. It's actually at the back of Annerley there. You know where the soccer fields are. and It's been named and shamed. Yeah, it has. It, ha- it has. Beautiful part of the world though, but I'm just saying like it, that, was a, it, that was more of a, an epiphany for me at the time. The thing is, when I, when I moved to Brisbane, I moved for, for, for work. I moved because I, be- I was appointed the chief auctioneer for Remax. And um, I was in my 20s and it was just practical that I had to be there because most of my work was in Brisbane. As I became more independent, I started to do work, um, you know, events. Um, it became, it became uh, I didn't have to live in that, in, that, in that marketplace. I grew up on the Gold Coast. I went to primary school here. Um, and it was just a good example of making a decision about where you want to live uh, because, yes, where you want to work is important, but obviously in real estate, it helps when, when you actually love where you live and where you work. Um, and it would have been a lot easier for me setting up a, a real estate business in Brisbane because I actually knew more agents and I probably had a higher profile as an auctioneer there, um, but I actually really wanted to live on the Gold Coast and... I think it's a great decision because I'm extremely passionate about this region and love the marketplace. And that was pretty much your time as a trainer came to an end and then you cracked into Coastal more or less in 2011. And when you initially took reins of the business, your mindset, you had a sort of limiting belief around the amount of growth you wanted from a people perspective because you thought it could sort of infiltrate or get in the way of the culture that you wanted to create and sort of you've told the story in the past about how you went to New Zealand Awards Night with Cooper and Co and that limiting belief was sort of shattered in real time for you and I think limiting beliefs are such a big part of this industry I think oftentimes we convince ourselves we don't want something because 
really it's an underlying limiting belief or you don't quite believe you're capable of it. You've said in the past that businesses don't stay small by choice. So clearly there's some sort of blockage. If someone genuinely believes they're capable of doing much more, business owner or agent, and has all the skills to do much more, it's a pretty rare person that still then chooses to say exactly where they are and makes that conscious decision. So you've worked through this yourself on the limiting beliefs front, and I'd love to sort of hear your perspective on this topic in general, and I'm sure you've interfaced with this issue with your agents week to week as well. Yeah, well, we all have them, and that particular one you're referring to, I you know, started off as a, a smaller business, and it's interesting because when you, uh, we lost a guy the other day in our business, and he's a great young guy, and the reason he gave for leaving is um, congested, wanted to collaborate, wanted to be with a smaller team. And of course, the people that were recruiting him were saying all these things like, hey, you're gonna have a free reign in the market, all those things. And I remember just thinking to myself when he was explaining this to me, that's exactly what I would have said when I was, when I was a younger, smaller business. So it's, it's interesting how um, the very same thing you, you know, when you're a younger fledging business and small, you kind of use what you've got at the time. But I, yeah, I do believe businesses don't necessarily stay small by choice. I think they stay, they, they sometimes stay small because their model's not working. You know, they have churn, so they have people come through their business, um, and they may not retain them. Uh, and if if you look at some businesses, if they had have retained even ninety percent of the people that have gone through their business, they'd actually be a big business. That'd be huge. They'd be enormous. But the thing is, they haven't done that because they haven't got the right. They're not giving value effectively. They're not you know providing that platform where people want to stay and they can grow their businesses that that one you were talking about uh, when i went to new zealand i actually sat on the table of martin cooper who is a huge business in in australasia in in auckland and i was really blown away by the level of personal connection that he had with his team the bigger businesses that i was observing in australia didn't have that personal connection so i had that belief that well that's how big businesses are but it wasn't until i actually saw a big business that had personal connection that had people you know, that felt like they were part of a, a big, powerful organization, but still recognized and seen by the leadership, that made a, ha- a massive difference to me because I saw it and I thought, well, we can do it. And straight away, I came back and started acting in a way that hey, it can be done. So yeah, you're right, those, those things. And what's, what's really important for all of us is we have an awareness about those things because you're right. You can say, oh, I don't want that, but do you really not want that? Or are you just telling yourself that because you're afraid and you know, you're telling yourself a story of, of how it will be, how stressful life will be? Um, the other thing that's interesting is sometimes people don't get big because they think it's going to be stressful. And if you ask anyone in our company, I'm probably the least stressed person in our company because we've got such a great team around us. And I've narrowed my focus so much now that my focus is deal support, agent support, leadership. That's my, that's my job. I'm not in property management. I don't auction anymore. So I've got a very specific role in our business, which I need my energy for to conduct that bit, that role. And as a result, having all those great people around you, you actually find you're less stressed when you've got a bigger businesses and great people around you than you are when you're trying to do everything. I see businesses that are smaller where the principal's literally almost a control freak trying to have their fingers in every, every, every single transaction every single part of their business. And as a result, that creates stress. They have to wear every single hat. And that applies on the agent side as well, I'm sure. If you're writing half a million bucks in GCI, maybe you've, maybe you've got a support person, but at three or four million, you definitely have an EBU and a team. Absolutely. So you're potentially just doing 
less of the things at the top end. Everything else has been handled by your team and you're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't nearly as stressful as, yeah, as it's made out to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so the late Don Marion, huge mentor of yours, found one of the founding fathers of real estate, founder of Remax. And sort of what he was most known for drilling into was never think you've arrived was the big one there. That's right. Never think you've arrived. So there's different forms that never think you've arrived can take, I think. Obviously, you've got the ego side of it, taking delivery of the new car, just pen to big deal, whatever it is. And you, you genuinely feel, oh, I don't need to do that prospecting call or that entry level activity anymore. I'm beyond that. But I think the more realistic scenario is this servicing trap you talk about falling mm-hmm. into where you just get a bit of stock and you get carried away in just servicing that stock only and not doing the list to list activities that you talk about the reality is you've talked about this healthy paranoia that you keep bottled up if you're not doing the activities there's someone out there hungry and humble with new business energy who's hustling and before you know it they'll they'll eat your lunch if if you take your off the ball for too long it's a competitive industry yeah it's i had a real example of this recently where one of my top agents went to a lunch and this this top agent of mine has stopped drinking absolutely on fire like he's really in a he's he's treating himself like a corporate athlete and he's flying like he's in career best form he's probably on track to do three to four million gci this year and he went to a lunch recently where he he ran into a friend of his from a competitive agency and his friend started talking to him about oh i've got six auctions before the end of the year i'm not taking any more on um you know basically basically i'm pushing back business because i'm at capacity and he came away from that lunch and explained that to me. And I said, isn't that interesting that you've got him who's probably carrying 12 exclusives, you know, going to settle a million GCI this quarter. And you think to yourself, he's just, he's just spoken to a friend of his that's in the same industry that's pushing back business because they've reached their own level of capacity. So I just found that fascinating that you've got one person who's pushing back business with six listings. You've got someone who's got 12 that's going to settle double what they're settling, but is still hungry for more. Why is that? You know, one, and it can only be that that success thermostat or whatever you want to call it has been exceeded by that person. So they start to actually, it's not self-sabotage, but it's almost like they, they kind of wind themselves back to go, well, I've gone beyond what I thought I'm capable of. So I'll start to, I'll put the, the afterburners on and I'll slow down versus someone who's going, no, but I'm going to chase my potential here and I'm going to stay open and hungry to actually go and see what, see how far I can push this. I mean, why do we work so hard to get ourselves in these positions? And when the critical moments to grow come, we don't actually take them on. And I think that's that's a really good example that, I, that I've witnessed recently. And it almost ties into the limiting belief side because you reach a level and you go, you know what, this is great. And like you said, you don't push and hunt for more, which is interesting. Okay, recruitment. What I found so interesting is I was listening to an interview with you from earlier in the year, this year, and it was around the time that you had 90 salespeople, so you've grown a fair bit since then. But you said that of the 90, you had to go out and get 87 outbound recruitment phone calls, which I found really interesting. Even more interesting is that you've sort of said, even with the position you're in now and the amount of times that you've done that activity, you still feel a sense of genuine nervousness at times, that call reluctance that we all feel from time to time. And you talk about this sort of five seconds of courage muscle. Mm. Now this is applicable to agents and principals listening. I'd love to to sort of elaborate on this concept of this five seconds of courage and building this muscle to do the rep. Yeah, well, Carter, you've done your research, mate. This is amazing. Um, yeah, well, I mean, for the first point about recruiting is, and, and go back a step, because a lot of people say to us, oh, you've got an attraction business. And I think that whole term attraction business, it's real, but it's, it's, not, it's more magnetic than it is attract. 
So when you do the work and you make the calls and you put yourself in a position to actually you know, get a listing or attract an agent, I think by being a good business, you then increase your magnetism rather than you just sit back and wait for them to join because you attract them. I don't think it happens like that. If you think about it though, it makes sense because a really good agent with a really good business isn't just sitting there going, where am I gonna move next? Oh, that business looks slightly sexier than where I'm at now. I think I'll go and join. That's not how they think. Um, In fact, if I was to make a recruiting call and someone was to say, oh yeah, great, that sounds good, I'll join, I'd be really worried. So they'll do the same thing with the next person. Exactly, because the way you get them is the way you lose them. You know, that's what you've got to remember. So I think the thing is you're looking at, you've got to go out there and go, well, okay, um, I'm not trying to rip someone out of a business if they're, if they're happy and they're productive. But all I know is I, I kind of like to use the term liberation. You know, I'm trying to liberate someone from an environment that may not be working for them. It might even be oppressive. Um, it might even be stale. Because the other thing is you might join a business 10 years ago and that business might be completely different now because the principal might be disinterested. There might be other people in the business that have, that have kind of you know, developed a toxic voice that you're no longer, that's sort of affecting your ability to grow. You talk about the business leaves them, they don't leave the business. Yeah, exactly, that's right. And I think that happens all the time because business has changed. And that paranoia is we've gonna make sure that doesn't happen to us. We're gonna make sure we're a better business than what we were a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, because not everyone's gonna love growth. I mean. If you're there with two other people and you're working with two agents and it's just you and them, those same people may not love the journey of getting to 100 agents because it does change that dynamic. So you've got to make sure, okay, maybe they're not getting exactly the same band of brothers feel, but they're getting a lot more value because now you've got better marketing, you've got better infrastructure, you've got better events, you've got better culture, better environment, you've got a, a more powerful, compelling story to tell at a listing presentation. You've got to make sure those benefits are actually outweighing what they were at the beginning as you start to grow because taking people on the journey is a really important part of that. And on the five seconds of courage, sort of building that five seconds of courage muscle, if you could sort of expand on that. Yeah, well, I often reflect on, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of people I can tell you um, that if I didn't make that call and didn't have that, you know, five seconds of doubt and courage, um, they would never have been be, be in my business. And it's almost like we have to prove this to us to ourselves over and over again. Um, I think that five seconds of courage is everyone feel. I don't care who you are, to make that call, that that phone call and put yourself out on a limb, whether it's a listing you're chasing or whether it's an agent you're chasing or whether it's asking someone out on a date or whatever it is. If people do that anymore. They have apps for that. Yeah, apps for See, that. See, that's now. how long I've been out of the game. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's that five seconds of of okay, I'm feeling really nervous about this, a bit insecure, but I'm going to make the call anyway. That courage is what separates action from inaction, and that that separates from the haves and the have-nots in our industry because we almost do that every day. What's interesting is the more you do it, it does build a muscle of that don't feel like it muscle or that courage lack of courage muscle that when you start doing it. You start to go, well, I didn't die. In fact, that person was thrilled to hear from me. Um, and all of a sudden, you've got someone sitting in your business that's now got 10 listings that all started with you overcoming that fear. When you can make that link, you realize that that's where the magic is. Because if you don't do it, you actually, you'll never know what could have been. You'll never know how good that listing could have been that led to the other 10 in the marketplace that you started to dominate. So... Always remember, when you're feeling like that, I, I also like to picture a competitor. Because if you're feeling like that, how many of your competitors then don't make that call? 
picture that because then it becomes a net turnaround of, well, if I get one agent from that or one listing from that, they actually lose a listing from that. So it's actually a net result of they lost one, I picked up one, that's a net gain of two. But then it's the five I get from that that they didn't get because they didn't make the call. So picture your competitors right now in the office talking themselves out of those calls and you're actually the person that goes, no, I'm going to separate myself here and I'm going to make that call. I think that's a really powerful thing just to picture in your mind because you start to develop this sense of I am different, I am confident and I'm... I, I, to me, the most amazing feeling in the world you can ever have is to be proud of yourself. And if you're doing that, what you're doing is you're developing a self-confidence that develops self-pride, which to me is like a really, it's not arrogance, it's not overconfidence, it's just I'm proud of myself because I did something that was hard that got me a result that I wouldn't have got if I hadn't have had that character. That's huge. And that phone call fitness that you talk about, you know, you come back from a holiday, you're facing that same battle again. So you need, it, it is a muscle that you need to build because you will need to reuse it. Another thing I've heard you speak about in the past is this idea of state management before you hop on the phone, which I think is enormously important. You've spoken about, you know, salaried employee in a regular nine to five, whether they rock up to work high energy, kind of so-so, doesn't make a huge difference. But for a salesperson, I mean, the level of production they can have when they're on and when they're not is night and day yeah absolutely and i like to think like we're all rubik's cubes like you're the way what gets you in the zone whatever you want to call that or what what gets you um in a great state where you 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 feel like you want to start making those actions but which i'll talk about that can actually be a bit of a a paradox as well because you know the motivation myth is action precedes motivation or motivation precedes action it's actually the other way around sometimes just starting something and feeling like it was really shit is actually what needs to be done for you to get to the second and third call, which then, of course, are great. So sometimes just accepting that the first call is going to be shit, but you have to start to get to the next one. It's never as shit as what you think, but you've got to actually make that start. But the state things about like, someone explained to me once, I think it was an American trainer that talked about how there was this guy in America who was about to make calls and they did an office visit and he was literally slapping himself in the face, psyching up. And everyone's thinking, what, what's he doing? Is he, is he about to go into a big meeting? And they said, no, no, he's about to start his prospecting calls. So he was, a, he was about to start prospecting calls, getting himself in this huge state of excitement and energy. And that makes sense when you think about our industry. Like, are you making calls begrudgingly? And I always love the idea, like, think about door knocking, right? If, do you knock on the door and go, geez, I hope they're not home? Or do you knock on the door and go, geez, I can't wait to meet these people? You know, it's a different mindset. They talked about Don Bradman when you're batting. If you ever played cricket, I was a horrible cricketer. And I remember when I was batting in cricket, you know, in the under 11s, I was, I was actually really nervous about getting out there. I really didn't want the guy before me to get out because I didn't really want to be out there. They reckon Bradman used to sit at, you know, first or second drop, and he used to hope the other person got out. And that's a different mindset. He was actually going, geez, I hope the guy before me gets out because I can't wait. I think Steve Smith would be the same. I just can't wait to be out there and bat. So do you want to be in the the arena? And I I, I remember that quote that I shared at Eric a few years ago. Most people think they want to be a matador until they get into the ring with a two-ton angry bull only to realize what they really wanted to do was just dress up in tights and have people cheer at them. So if you think about it like that, do you actually want to be a matador or do you actually just want the accolades? 
do you want to be a real estate agent or do you actually want to go and do the process? Do you want, do you want the sales and the suits and the, and, the, and the rewards of being a salesperson or do you want to actually really immerse yourself in the science and process of becoming a real estate salesperson, becoming a student of it? Knock on a door that goes badly and then adjust on the next door to go, well, I handle that better because I, I'm learning. But the point is you're actually out there doing it rather than theorizing and you know, it's not a complicated business, but I tell you what, we do an amazing job of making it more difficult than it really needs to be. Over theorizing, and I think every salesperson could attest to when they are doing prospecting and they're like, pick up, pick up. They're in that mindset where you want to get a hold of them. And when you're going through the reps just for the sake of ticking off the numbers, and you're, just, like I said, half hoping they don't pick up. So that's something everyone can relate to. On talent, so you spoke about it earlier in this conversation, your model at Coastal is to sort of recruit or you call it sort of liberate the established talent with industry experience more often than not, bring them into your business, give them the platform and the environment to be even more successful if they choose to be. Imagine you're at coffee with a principal and they're on the cusp of hiring someone with no real estate experience at all. What would you be saying to that principal to make sure that having a conversation with about this potential new to industry recruit to make sure they've got the right expectations? And obviously it has a lot to do with what you just said, loving the phone. And it probably has a lot to do with sort of this poison chalice of this be your own boss mentality and this perceived sense of freedom they probably think they're walking into. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, our model is very rare that we'll put someone on brand new. Um, and that's about knowing myself. I'm not great at it. I don't enjoy it. Someone brand new in the industry um, is not necessarily going to get what they need in our business. We specialize in people that are already established agents that want to grow and want to get great value or they're you know they've cracked the code they're starting to get you know up and running and they want to they want more value and they want a better environment to grow because you know they just they've outgrown where they are so that's what we're really good at getting someone from here to here who's already established um, but in saying that I definitely got a view about this because um, I think someone's starting cold start is almost like in, in a lot of cases, it's almost a death sentence in our industry. Like, here's a phone, you go, on your own, go. And that's the saying, isn't it? Here's a desk, here's a phone. That's oh, yeah. the classic. 100%. I, I think it's... Like, we've got a guy in our business at the moment. He's, he's just coming up to his second year. He's only in his 20s. And he's just in his second year with one of our senior agents. And the agreement is, he's coming in, and he is, he is basically building the senior agent's business. Now, the agreement is, at the time that he's ready... He'll go with the senior agent's blessing, and he, but, in this, but what he has got is he's got a university degree, effectively, in real estate by being three or four years. Sometimes it might be one year for some people. For others, it might be three or four or five. And look, he could get to a point where he's like, well, my business is actually better staying within this business unit because the, the person he's with might be getting older and might want him to step up and start taking more control and listings, and it might make sense for them to stay together. But what I, the advice I'd give to someone starting now is find an agent that's an elite agent that's a good human that you can actually go and work with and become part of their team and understand the mechanics of being a real estate agent without the pressure and risk of I'm from day one, I've got to go and get a listing cold start. I think that's harder. What should a principal look for? Well, to me, it's like, are they good human beings is really the first question. The other thing is, and this is harder to answer when they're beginning, but you know deep down, would I list with that person? You know, would I list with them? And, and that's a whole lot of, you know, why would I list with someone? Because they, they listen, they get it, 
they're professional, they're confident, and I, and I feel like they can give me the right advice and guide me through a process. If you're not getting that vibe from someone, if they're poorly dressed, unsure of themselves, um, you know, not necessarily articulate, not inspiring you with a sense of confidence, I think that person is, is maybe not ready for real estate or not suitable for the game. So I think the old, the old test of would you list with them is a really great place to start. And you can still do that with someone who's new because... Oh, it's, people, a, it's an energy, isn't it's, it? It's an energy, yeah, yeah. absolutely. They come across like, yeah, I, I think this person's got their shit together. Mm. I really, I, I'd, I'd follow them, I'd list with them, I'd, I know they can get the job done. At Coastal, you, the leadership team yourself have this mindset, which I think is probably the most sort of important part of your fabric and DNA is that the agent is the client and you're creating this sort of luxury hotel experience for your agents being the clients. And when you look at it, the realities of it, when an agent joins a group, they're expecting more than a color and a brand nowadays. They want to genuinely receive value for the fees that they're paying. And I think one of the big ways that Coastal over delivers on that front is this sort of administrative backbone that you've got called the A-Team. Mm. And like I said, when Rob Ford first joined your business, he was pretty convinced you were way too admin top heavy. That's just how many people you've got in that department. There are some members of the group that don't feel the need to put on an ER or support staff. They feel they get that level of support from the A-Team. So... If you're addressing the principal community out there, obviously this is an area you've over-invested in. How important a piece of the puzzle is this sort of admin backbone when it comes to genuinely adding value to your agent's lives? ShotFlow have created technology in-house that automatically edits high quality and affordable property videos, which means you can get it coming soon, just listed and a just sold video with enough room for a spend budget that guarantees thousands in your farm area will actually see these videos, all vendor paid for less than the price of a typical standalone property video. To learn more, visit shopflow.io online or visit their Instagram at shopflow.io. Again, that's shopflow.io online or visit their Instagram at shopflow.io. Sellerleadsforagents.com.au. Quite simply, if you would pay for more potential seller leads in your farm area to get you in more doors and boost your GCI, head to sellerleadsforagents.com.au. Again, head to www.sellerleadsforagents.com.au and sign up. We're here today in Hedges Residence by Harry Paulus Architects. This home is incredible, but the position is arguably even better. We are literally on the beach on Hedges Avenue in Mermaid Beach. If you would like to stay here, you can. It's available for short-term booking through Airbnb. Head to the link in the description to make your booking. Again, whether you're on YouTube or listening on audio, head to the link in the description and make your booking. Yeah, it's a great question. And look, we choose to be admin heavy because a couple of reasons. Number one is, if an agent's handing over a percentage of their hard-earned commission, yes, they're getting a brand. Yes, they're getting an environment. Uh, yes, they're getting a place to come and sit and make their calls and you know do their job. But I would say to you that if you're not giving them good admin support, then that's a big part of the value equation to me. Because, and the reason for that is if you were to if you were to give the responsibility to an agent of employing their admin person training their admin person, leading their admin person, making sure their admin person is on top of all the latest you know, legalities, apps, legislation, um, all the things that are efficient to make their business function, I'd say that the agent's not necessarily the best person to do that. Um, what The best person to do that is a professional essential services company, which is our Harcourt's Coastal team, that actually train, hire, nurture, and provide a great admin platform so you can plug into that. Um, and it's really not that much more than going to a business that is full service versus a business where here's a phone and a desk and a brand, go and do it yourself. The difference is negligible in terms of commission. 
but the businesses I think that do that really well actually have more efficient agents because they're not spending their time hiring and firing an administrator or, or worse still, they're putting a PA on and expecting the PA to be an administrator, an open home conductor, a buyer agent, a laundry collector, you know, all those things that a PA is supposed to do. So we find people who come to us with PAs will come to us and their PA will stop doing admin, liaise with our admin team to get more admin done. And then that frees that PA up to be more dollar productive to do dollar productive activities in that agent's business. So for me, it's part of our, it's not everyone's model, but for me, it's a big part of our model because we believe that it's a big part of the value, which then creates stickiness to agents because we have, you know, and everyone loses people. We've lost we think we've got industry-leading uh, you know, retention, but we've still lost a handful of people over the years. And the feedback we get from a lot of those people, some might go and do their own business, is that they really do miss our administration services team. We've had people come back because of it. So, and I always make sure I pass that feedback on to our A team because, you know, when someone, you know, when we do a training session, for example, and we have a Lee Woodward come in, the administration team's ready. They already have the letters and templates and, you know, all those things that are going to be asked for from the agent at the end of that training, because there's nothing worse. You do all this training, an agent comes out, they're all excited, and then the administration team has no idea. Oh, you've been to another, another seminar. Yeah, here we go. They're actually ready, and they've got all those tools in place. So there's not a disconnect between the agent's energy I want to implement versus the A-team ready to actually go and put those things in place. And continuing with this sort of luxury hotel metaphor that you're creating for your agents, I guess I look at your broad, broad Beach office and you've done a fit out there, a renovation. So it's almost looking like a luxury hotel as well nowadays. I guess if you're at coffee with a principal and let's just say they've got 10 agents in the office, there's nothing right with the office. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just kind of is what it is. Are you pushing them to do a renovation or a fit out because it's a recruiting tool, it's a retention tool? They're going to get more productivity from their agents or is it definitely falls in the more nice to have category? Well, it, yeah, well, that's an interesting question because when we, like for years, we had a very average looking office and reality is you could argue that like offices this, these day and age with, with you know, building materials and, and fashion and trend, um, an office becomes pretty redundant after say five years. You know, you think you cool timber floors, beachy feel now, but in five years time it it's might be whole, whole yeah it's <laughs> over it's like it's like palm springs is almost out now well and surely out when hamptons palm springs a lot of, you know now cactus and polished floors are becoming a little bit you know the next is mediterranean believe it or not you know so it's all becoming very interesting the way that's going but we had we used to have people come and visit our office and go oh number one harcourt's office in australia and they'd come through our office and it was just a a serviced office attached to a service office and i think what's going on like is there something we're missing here our renovation wasn't that flash. Um, it's not as important as the as the feel and the energy behind it. So it's not, it's not on the top of the list because I've been into offices where the opposite is. It's beautiful fit out, um, stunning offices, but the actual value and the feel and the energy in that place just isn't there. And what creates that to me is connection. Like, are you genuinely connected with your people and... It starts from the top. So when you walk into an office every day, I say hello to everyone I see. I, I, I kind of almost look at it like a, you know, if you've ever been to hospital, you'll know that the, the specialist will come around and sort of knock on the door. He won't make an appointment. He'll just knock on the door and, and look at your chart, pick it up, make a few observations. And then, you know, at the end of that sort of touch point, you go, oh, okay, I know what's going on now. 
I've got an, I've got a scan tomorrow, whatever it might be. Same with us. So every day when I'm in the office, I'll make an effort as much as I can to go and whoever's in, I'll go and check into that office to see how they are. And inevitably something will come up, working on that listing, working on that deal. Um, I just did it this morning with tweaks and photos and realestate.com for someone because I thought, hey, I don't know whether that's the right you know, main shot for a property, just something of that detail, but it's still involvement in their business. So I can pretty much tell you of all the agents that we interact with where a lot of them are at with their businesses because you're actually in touch with them and you become sort of a, a sounding board and, a, and, a, and a, as someone that they can bounce off, whether that's deal support, listing support, business advice, mentoring, you're actually there on a daily basis and you know, you know what's going on by checking in. That's far more important than how sexy your office is. Or what the floors look like. Exactly. Training is something you touched on. You've got Lee Woodward in for the complete salesperson course. You get the best minds to speak to your group. But you spent a fair bit of time as a trainer, as we said at the beginning of this interview, and you would do a session, high conviction in the room, high energy. You'd be pretty convinced you just made a dent in their cha- in their behavior, sorry. And then it wasn't until you took reins of your own group and you realized, oh, the old behaviors are still being repeated. So this is a topic you're pretty passionate about because you've kept bringing it up over the years in terms of how to make the training stick and getting things into your game. What have you learned about this to, to actually get your agents to use the training or is your role to provide the training and it's up to the agents to take advantage of that resource? Well, if you look at the circle of control, I mean, you can't control how someone reacts to a training session and then decides whether they do or don't implement something that's going to massively change their business. We can control the delivery of the training, we control the quality of the training, but it's really ultimately up to the person on the other end. And if anyone could control that, well, you know, they've cracked the code to be a billionaire. The, the biggest frustration <laughs> of, of, you know, of, the, of the education industry. I mean, why do 4,000 people go to ARIC every year and then you know, 3,997 of them go back to what they were doing? Why does that happen? I just made that statistic up, by the way. But, you know, there's a big percentage of people that will go to a, a, a session and be... And the thing is, there's a difference between motivation, temporary motivation and inspiration versus like genuine burning desire and ambition that's in someone that will actually then... That, that, that's something that can be harnessed and brought out. And then from that, they'll seek answers and they'll be more open to training. Um, what's interesting is, yeah, you do... You can also become a bit of a prophet in your own land. Like... I find doing this, someone will listen to this outside of our business and think, oh, that was great. I got this out of it and that's a good idea. But then someone in my business might be watching this very oh, interview that's and think, oh, yeah, I've heard that all before. You know? yeah. So, it, and, and you know, we might get someone like Matt Lancashire into our team who's an amazing agent. Same thing. And I always, I spoke at Matt's team, you know, I speak it all the time. We kind of swap and haze as well. And what's interesting, I always say to the guys in Matt's team, hey, you do realize you've got a world-class agent in your business that's doing amazing things, industry leading. And for them, it's just Matt. Oh, it's just Matt. It's okay for Matt. So sometimes you've got to be really aware that, hey, that person in your business is actually world-class. Like, listen to them, use them. But I find what's really interesting, the top people in our business, we probably speak to the most. Not because we go to them, but because they pull us in. They'll pull us into the conversation because... They want to get better. They want to be challenged. They want to share what they're doing because they're actually out there having wins and losses and want to bounce. The people at the tail sometimes are more reluctant to do that because they're stuck and they might be a bit embarrassed about that. They might be... So they're hiding away. They're hiding away. You know, so that's why I think forced one-on-ones don't work because when you go and force a one-on-one with someone and you say, what are you up to? 
the tail will often just make appraisals up and they'll, you know, I'm doing this and that. And they're kind of, it's not really coming from the right place. You've mm. got to want it. Like, if you don't want it, I'm not going to want it for you. I can't want success more for someone than they want it for themselves. And that's, I think, the frustration because I learned that early on. You put a goal up to say, do, when you're a smaller business, say, do 10 million in written business and you've got five agents. If those five agents don't want to, you know, do 2 million each or they don't want to have a crack, well, you have to find more people. Like, otherwise, your, your results are going to be related on someone else's ambition. So I think you've, you've got to be really careful that you don't, you know, think that you can't overestimate the influence you can have on someone, but you can't underestimate it either. You've got to provide, as you say, you've got to provide the environment. So if and when someone wants to step up, they actually can. On that motivation sort of analogy, you can't sort of take from your cup of motivation, get someone to drink it, and then all of a sudden they're as motivated as you. But you've spoken about this sort of positive feedback loop in the past. And if someone is listening to this at the moment, or even if they come to you and they're saying they're not motivated, what I've learned from you is that motivation is not at the beginning of the cycle to then do the actions. Actually, at the end, at the very beginning is willpower. And then with enough willpower, that gets you going initially. You start to do some things. It becomes a habit. And then there's, it kickstarts this chain reaction down the line. And it, there's always that, you know, and it guys kind of goes back to that, you know, five seconds of courage and whatever. And just on that too, um, you can also have a great tool for that, which is that Mel Robbins tool, the five second rule, which is basically flipping that on its head. And it's whenever you feel an act, you know, a compulsion to do a positive action, you've basically got five seconds to act before it's just a fleeting thought that leaves. So if you, if you get a thought comes into your mind, and try it now if you're listening, if something comes into your mind, I know I should make that call. Count back five, four, three, two, one, and give yourself that amount of time to make that call. If you don't do it right then and then, you don't have that urgency, it's probably going to go away. Like going for a run, just put your socks on, put your shoes on. If you don't do it within five seconds of the thought, I'll just watch this, this episode on Netflix. By the time you get to that episode, your whole state changes, and then you've got to get yourself back up again. So I think that, I think that feeling like thing is a real thing. And we've just always got to be really conscious of that. Um, because if we don't act on it, you know, we'll just talk ourselves out of it. Literally, as human beings, we will talk ourselves of everything just to avoid effort. Because that's how we're programmed, really, aren't we? We're programmed mm. to just conserve energy. Another sort of extension of this idea that I love that you've spoken about is to create this sort of detachment. So if you're the real estate agent, just create this detachment. You're the employer. And now think of you as the employee. And now as the employee, all of a sudden, you don't have a say. Because who's in after Melbourne Cup Day and the Christmas party? It's admin at 8.30 right. or 9 because they have to be. So if you treat yourself like that, I've just got to do it. Obviously, easier said than done when there's no one that's going to be keeping you accountable. But that's something that you've laid down the path It's to. true. And, and it's really the, the way to explain that. It's the, 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 when you see an advertisement for real estate, be your own boss, freedom, you know, work your own hours. But the dark side of freedom in our industry is most people can't manage their own freedom. So if I said to someone, hey, clean this house two hours a day and I'll give you half a million a year or a million a year to do it, but you have, to, you have to do it two hours a day every day. The question is, would you take the job if it paid 500 or a million a year? Most people would say, yeah, of course I would. That's crazy. Why wouldn't I? But if you look at our industry, if I said to you, prospect for two hours a day, like what I mean by that is put two hours a day into generating new business that you currently don't have and doing those actions for two hours a day and you did that for a year 
like I've said to people, if you do that for a year and your business doesn't significantly increase and you don't make 500 to a million a year, I'll give you a check for the difference. I've said that to people, set them that challenge and they just glaze over. And I know that you can, I know that you can set that challenge because I know it'll happen. It will happen. But yet the difference in our business, you don't necessarily get that visibility on, hey, you've made 10 calls, it's worth this amount of money and the money doesn't go straight into your account like a job where you work the hours, you put your pay slip in, you get paid. The difference in our industry is that it's cumulative and it, it relies on connectivity and consistency over time. You can't just do it once. You can't just do it for a week. You've got to do it every day for a year, two years, a decade. If you do that, I mean, the income, as we know, is absolutely phenomenal. Like you've got people earning more than brain surgeons in our industry, which it's a, it's a whole debate of whether that's right or wrong, but it is what it is. The reality is it's value, providing value because you're becoming the person in your marketplace that does transactions and you know, and, and is, is in the line of those, those listings and sales. That's what happens. Huge. Coming back to the, the sort of office conversation we were having and you were saying there's way more important things. You were talking about how you're providing this deal support and sort of trusted advisor sort of role to your agents. Another piece to this sort of culture puzzle is the events, the gifts, you know, the recognition of tenure, recognition of performance, all these sorts of things. And you spend a pretty serious amount of dough on these sorts of things like your top 20 agent getaways, your coastal anniversary celebrations, right? So again, if you're sort of speaking to the principal community in Australia and New Zealand listening right now, how important is this spending serious money on these things? Well, I guess that's what you do, but what would you advise the principals listening to on this sort of front? Well, I can only say that you, you can't fake caring. If you don't care, like you can't fake it. And caring to me, people say, what's the secret to customer service? Care. If you care and you, you get a complaint or something's wrong, you'll fix it. If you don't care, you'll brush it off. You'll walk past the standard. It, won't, it, it just won't get better. So I think the thing is, it starts with a deep care of wanting to make sure that when someone has the faith in working for our business, we actually acknowledge that that's a decision they've made and we, don't want, to tr we want to treat that with the utmost respect because if they don't make that decision, we don't have a business. So everything we do from an events perspective and a, and a recognition perspective is really just a reflection of our appreciation for someone who actually joins our business and knowing that we're on the journey together. Real estate, whether, whether I work in that office or this office, the business outside of the office doesn't change. Like the clients aren't any, if you work at Harcourt's Coastal, the clients aren't any less demanding. So the clients don't change, the job doesn't change, the frustration doesn't change. What we can control is how someone feels about the place they work and how valued they are. And we find recognition and events are a very big part of that. Collectively, I mean, most people want to be part of something. I want to be part of something. I want to be recognised. I want to be... No, I want to know that I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a winning team and I, know what, I, know, I want to know that the people I work with care about me and appreciate the work that I do and I'm not on my own. Um, and I think that's a big thing. It comes from a deep human need to feel connected um, because we are doing this special thing together. It is something that, you know, we'll, we'll all get to a point in our career where we look back and go, we were part of something really special. And what I love about our business is that we don't necessarily carry that energy, energy outside of our business. We know we're doing something special but on the outside, I, I like to think that we've got a humility and a naturalness about us where 
you know, people know that coastal people take the business seriously, but they don't necessarily take themselves as seriously, which is exactly how we roll. With the size of the group that you have, it's pretty inevitable that people are going to leave at some point, like and you've referenced that earlier in this conversation. What I find interesting is as a group, what I've heard from previous interviews with you is that you sort of make this off-ramp quite friendly. Like one example of that is from a data perspective, they take their data, you're not going to touch their data, which is a pretty generous policy. So I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts on why you structure things that way. And then also, I love this mindset you've spoken about in the past where, where someone does leave when you're the best in the best place mentally, you look to yourself for the accountability and you're not doing the blame victim game. Oh, 100%. And look, this comes from not wanting to be a real estate cliche. And a real estate cliche is someone works with you for 10 years. They're amazing. They're a top performer. They leave. That same person that was amazing for 10 years that you had dinner with that was an awesome human being, the moment they leave someone else's business, all of a sudden they're, you know, some people feel out of a sense of insecurity they feel this compulsion to throw shade on that person. Oh, yeah, but it didn't work out, and they changed, and it was this, and it was that. And you know, I just find that just I just find that repulsive. When someone works in your business and makes a decision to leave, the first the first onus is me. It's my fault, a hundred percent of the time. Now I just shared with you at the beginning of the interview a guy that left, right? Not his fault, my fault. I should have seen that. I should have tucked him in. Now, I can't, I can't be perfect in that, but I can learn from that and I can take responsibility because if I don't believe that, then it means that any person that's ever left is a bad human being, which is just not true. Like if someone sees value in another business and they want to pursue their career, why make it difficult for them? That same person gave you four years, five years, whatever it is of, of their life as a loyal servant growing you know growing our brand and growing their business i think it should be treated the same so i think you got to take responsibility that if someone leaves your business it's always my fault um it doesn't mean that it's not always it, it doesn't mean I always agree that it's the right decision for them but i don't i try not to make it hard because we do have a belief that the agent owns the data and that's that's not us necessarily being nice that's us that's a belief like we believe in our business they own the data um and I want to make it easy for their transition because I don't want to be a cliche. I don't want to be, I just don't want to be the typical real estate principal that I'm only nice to you if you work for me. I'm nice to you if you're a nice human being. And it's the old saying like how I judge, and you'd be the same, right? How I judge whether or, whether or not someone is my kind of person is if you go out to dinner, how do they treat the waiter? I don't necessarily care how they treat the important person that's got something to gain from that conversation, but I'm a big believer in that. How someone treats the person who actually has zero to gain from that relationship. Because it that, reveals their true nature. It does. It reveals their true nature. And, and it reveals that they're a nice human being. Now, it's, people are going to have bad days. You know, I think you can get too extreme with judging people for that. But that shows me a lot about whether or not someone's a good human being. doesn't mean it's not hard. I mean, does that mean that when someone really important to me who leaves, I, I feel like throwing my phone against the wall. I mean, I, I feel frustrated. But I still get back to a place of ownership because I find that empowering. I can control the next, you know, the, the next conversation and make sure that I don't I, that doesn't happen again. Interestingly, I had a really good agent join me a few years ago, and he actually asked about someone that had left our business, and I actually answered it in a very similar way. Where I said, "Well, that's my fault. I should have seen the signs. I should have tucked him in. He was going down a different path." my fault and, and he actually that. said he actually said to me afterwards that was the reason i joined because you owned it 
And if someone who owns that, well, you know, it shows that they're building a great business because they own their culture and they, they own the value in their team. It's such an attractive quality, isn't it? Because there's nothing more repulsive than someone who's always blaming and in a victim mindset. It's just... Well, it's, it's like when you get a complaint in a business. One of the best ways to shortcut a complaint is, I hear you, I apologize, that's our fault, and I'll fix it. And what else can I do? And quite often they'll just say, I oh, know I just wanted to tell you. Because there's nowhere to go after that. If you say, it's my fault and I'll fix it, there's really not... There's really not much more anyone can say. Yeah, because it escalates the upset if you're almost tap dancing around the fact that it's not your fault. It, yeah, if you're exactly. trying to defend it, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's just a great form of just extreme ownership. No, no, that's our fault. We'll fix it. Huge. Now, you've been around the agent community for a very long period of time. You've seen a lot of mistakes. And before we dive into that, I've heard on good authority that there's an agent in your group who would never make a mistake. The golden child of Coastal, Ed Cherry. Do we have that on good authority? Yes, that's right. He's a... He's the perfect boy. He's actually flying at the moment, Ed. He's in career best form, partner in our, in our Palm Beach business, and um, phenomenal agent, phenomenal guy. No, I met him once. He's an absolute legend. How much are we getting paid for that, Dill? <laughs> now, back on mistakes. So you've, you've noticed a lot of mistakes that agents have made over the course of their career. One of these big ones is this mindset of entitlement. Yeah. And the classic example is there's an agent making the calls, books the appraisal, gets in the door, owner says not selling, they lose all energy, they wanted an instant listing, go through the motions, deliver the appraisal, never keep in touch. Six months later, competitive signboard, and that agent goes, I was owed a phone call. And there might be an agent listening to this that genuinely feels in that scenario the agent was owed a phone call because to play as devil advocate, I mean, they did provide a free service, right? If you're addressing an agent listening to this that does feel like they were owed a call in that scenario, what would you say? Yeah, well, I think the opposite of entitlement is what gratitude and, and openness to opportunity and openness to learning and, and humility. Um, the classic one with real estate agents is they have a relationship with a seller, which they might have nurtured for years or might have just met them in open, but whatever, they've, they've engaged with the vendor. The vendor appoints them to sell the property most of the contact throughout their campaign is you know, informative, it's professional, doing a great job. They then transact that property and enter the buyer. The relationships with the seller, new relationship starts with the buyer. Most people handle that really poorly. So here's a, a bottle of champagne and the keys and I'll see you later. Um, by the way, those locks that are broken, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how they work, but good luck. So that transition of, I've had the relationship with the owner, the property's constant, but the ownership has now changed. That property comes up in a year's time, two years, three years time, and there's an entitlement that, oh, well, I sold that to them. Yeah, but you've got to remember, you had the relationship with the previous owner, not the current owner. The relationship for that new owner starts the moment it settles. So it's like the work begins, and there's this ridiculous belief that it's seven years or five years Look, it's just amazing how many times that's... I, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but that's getting shorter and shorter. I was only having this chat with someone the other day that had been in the same house 30 years. And it's very uncommon for that to happen now. Agree. It's very common for someone to, to, to flip properties, you know, in six months, 12 months, two years. They just don't... We just don't hold property. We're aspirational. We don't get as attached. So it's more important than ever to actually understand that your relationships with the new person... This entitlement where, you know, you know the, the other classic is, I, I sold, I've sold all in the area. Why didn't they call me, you know? And, um, well, why would they? Like, 
they're not tracking your numbers as much as you are. So for, through your lens of, of, um, of bias, yes, you're the, the, the obvious person for the, you know, for the job, but they, don't, they might not see it that way. They might just think we're all the same. They might, they might have a relationship with someone else. So this idea that you know, everything's going to come to me um, because I sold it or I've got the, I've got the most amount of business, that's an, that's an attitude that holds people back. It's this, you know, this entitlement. That's what I mean by that. It's, no, no, if you miss a listing, wouldn't you want to understand why you missed the listing? And quite often it's not because the, the vendor made a bad choice. It's because they don't know, who, they didn't know who you were. Like, why do, why do most people get listings? Because they're there, wherever there is. They met them and opened. They called them. They followed up. And I always say, like, there's no such thing as a bad lead. There's just bad follow-up. Because every lead, every listing, every person you meet that owns a property will eventually sell if you outlive them, right? It's just a matter of how long you keep in touch. Like, if you met someone six months ago, two years ago, and you went and did an appraisal and you gave up a Tuesday night and they come on with another agent, well, I'd go back and say, well, when was your last conversation with them? And if you actually drill down, oh, well, I didn't really keep in touch, if you're honest. Well, then what? You don't deserve that listing. And this ties into, you've spoken about this analogy in the past with the vineyard. So you go to the vineyard, there's grapes on the grapevines, there's not bottles of wine hanging on the grapevines. And it's it's this process of persistence and follow-up, which will take the grapes, which is the results are the appraisals, not the instant listings, right? The grapes represent the appraisal, which is, it's not in its finished form. The finished form is the wine bottle, which is the listing presentation. So there's a process to turn a grape into a bottle of wine. And that process is, you know, for us, it's maturing a contact into an actual relationship. And people can overestimate that. They can have market reports. They can have anniversary cards. All of that stuff's great. Don't overanalyze it. I'd say build a system that keeps in touch with people and not a pestering, are you ready to sell yet? But hey, checking in, would you like an appraisal? One round the corner sold. Last time I spoke to you, you were doing a renovation. How's that going? It's, it's just, a, it's, not a, it's not a complicated process. It's like, if you really wanted to build a relationship with someone, you wouldn't have to structure that as much. You would just, you'd structure the contact, but the contact itself wouldn't be structured. It would be more of a relationship kind of a model where you, you're really just checking in. How are you going? Like if we were to keep our relationship going, mm. we'd check in from time to time and we'd talk about this and there'd be something that I'd know from our last conversation that was going on and I'd simply ask you and there would be a, it would be a, an evolving process rather than this staged, are you ready to sell yet? Before we get to the final question here, this show Real Agent is partially initiative by Shopflow, which amplifies agent and agency profile through property video. My question here is a little bit of a niche one. We sometimes see this just in general where an agent will sort of cut their teeth early in their career on sort of lower demographic stock. Let's just use 500k units as an analogy for that um, or as a placeholder for that rather. And they sort of, they don't want to list to list that stock they end up building a half a million dollar business off the back of these units. And they're almost in this identity crisis because they're not a luxury agent, but they haven't made the decision to be a career agent selling these half a million dollar units. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what is wrong with that is maybe they're not posting this product on social media. They're not marketing it loudly. They're not leveraging the results because they're sort of, their foot's not not in either camp. If that was an agent in your group or you were at a one-on-one or a coffee with an agent in that scenario, what would you say to them? Well, first thing it says, own where you're at. If you've got 10, three, four, $500,000 listings in their apartments, do the best thing you can to promote them. And reality is we've got agents in our business that 
In fact, some of the best agents in our business have a lower sale price than their higher volume agents. It's not so much the, you gotta also look at it, it's not just the property and how, what kind of property I wanna deal with, it's what kind of business do you want? Because sometimes in high end and prestige, it's a longer time between drinks and the campaigns can be a bit more drawn out. Um, you know, to sell a, a property off market for 7 million, for example, or 10 million or 20 million can be a, a very stretched out long process. Um, sometimes it can be quick, but it is, is it, there's a lot more involved behind the scenes. For someone who's doing more transactions and they get the energy of deals, that might suit someone's personality because they like the winds of, of a higher paced, more stock processing kind of business, which it really comes down to what you, what, you know, what kind of floats your boat. Um, but I would say if you've got a listing, promote it because that gets the next listing and you'll, you'll grow with your clients. If your demographic right now and your client base is sitting in a certain range, you'll find that through years in business, that same person who had the, you know, the two bedroom unit investment has also got, or also might get to a, a million dollar home you know, in, a, in a central area that you want to list. And that million dollar home all of a sudden becomes a $5 million home. And if you become their client for life, you know, you go on the property journey with that client. So don't look at it in the short term as, oh, well, I'm just selling these kinds of apartments. Look at it, well, where's that client gonna be? Because I can tell you, the person transacting now in $500,000, a lot of them will actually upgrade. Real estate's aspirational, they go on a journey. And not only that, they'll refer people. So you'll actually go on that price journey with the client. Don't get preoccupied about, I don't wanna be that agent. Take everything, is my advice, and actually, you know, go on, the, go on that journey with the client. Final question here. When you first started Coastal, if I drew you up a contract and it said at the end of 10 years, you'll have 10 million GCI and you'll have a thousand managements, I slid it across you with a pen, you would have done that deal. But you would have sold yourself massively short on the numbers that you've actually now delivered. What are your sort of parting words of advice to the audience here and to the industry when it comes to backing yourself? sort of really having a go and sort of recognizing that you can get so much more done over a five or a 10 year timeline if you're committed and have gone pro than you think possible is right now. Yeah, well, I think the, um, that's true. I would have taken that deal. And I think it comes down to allowing your potential to unfold by not getting in your own way. And don't get too fixated on arbitrary numbers because I often say to my, our guys, so someone might have a goal and if they've had a particularly good quarter, sometimes that quarter is actually above their expectation. And I say to them, hey, if you've done a million this quarter, you're now a $4 million agent. That wasn't an outlying quarter. You know you can do it. So why can't you do it again and again? You can. The only reason you won't is you'll default back to where you think you are. But no, no, you're, you are now, a four, if you've done a million dollar quarter, you are now a $4 million agent. If you've done a $500,000 quarter, you're now a $2 million agent. So you setting a goal to do 2 million isn't really a goal because that's where you're already at. What you've got to look at is, what's the next step from that? And the next step from that might be the next realm of performance. So, I mean, my wife, um, Kim, who does an amazing job in PM, she always used to get frustrated me because as soon as we hit a threshold, it'd be like, well, okay, what's next? Not in a, a way that oh, I'll be happy when I arrive at that level of performance, but well, you've always got to look at, well, I've already hit that now, so that's old, what's next? So I think a lot of you know, people who are interested in growth, that's the mindset they have. They want to hit that next barrier of growth. They want to know what it feels like. They want to know what a business looks like if it gets to 
X, Y, Z. And that feeling of getting better and growing is, is really addictive. Huge. Dane, thanks for coming on Real Agent. Thanks for having it, mate. Your research, impeccable. Oh, I appreciate that coming from you. <laughs> thank you Cheers. very much. That was awesome. That's the fourth episode of Real Agent in the Books. Huge thank you and shout out to Dane for coming on this episode with us. Obviously, we've got a pretty great location for it. Subscribe across YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify if you'd like to get more of this. Otherwise, you can head to our site at realagent.co and subscribe to new releases there. Follow us on Instagram at realagent.co on Instagram for clips and real content. Thanks again to our partners for this episode, shopflow.io, Hedges Residence by Harry Paulus Architects, and sellerleadsforagents.com.au. See you in the next one.